from the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's a free phone call. Anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question to Father Wade. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Charles Beery. Ace McKay is handling our social media efforts. So make sure you tell Ace that you adore his fedora even though you can't see it on the phone or through social media. But trust me, it's there, and it's impressive. And uh, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, type a question into the chat window, and Ace will filter it our direction. And our hostess, he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and I want a fedora for my habit when I wear my habit. Yeah, well, there you go. We've got a, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Father John Tregilio, his, That's uh, right. his Skype icon uh, has a little fedora on. Huh? Oh, there you go. There, the, so the, the Beretta for ma- the Beretta for mass and the fedora for that's, all other that's times. Exactly right for the <laughs> for the uh, for the weather in uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland. He's got that's have right. That. So um, we started out last week talking about two periods of time, mm-hmm. and uh, we we only got to one of them. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> we are now living every Sunday being the little Easter now that Easter has taken place. So a note on, on giving Sundays to Almighty God, because indeed, Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, does teach that every Sunday is a celebration of the Paschal mystery of our Lord and all that he did for us in his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so I want to talk about how giving Sundays to God is important, how every Sunday is indeed seen as a little Easter for the Catholic Christian. And so uh, an importance here about Sundays and Sunday worship per se, right? God intended Sundays as days for worship, rest, joy, and charity for his people. Those are the four categories of how we view how our Sundays should be carried out. Worship, rest, 
joy and charity for his people. In today's world, however, it can be challenging to keep holy the Lord's Day with those four areas. But try these suggestions I'd like to recommend to our Open Line Tuesday listeners live this hour and beyond, those who listen to the podcast after the fact, uh, or others like them, uh, other suggestions like these I'm about to give to recapture Sundays for God. Regarding worship, Mass is a direct encounter with Almighty God. Make it the center and highlight of your Sunday itself. Make Mass the highlight of Sunday itself. Prepare yourself to receive Jesus in the Most Holy Eucharist by going to confession regularly each month and sharpening your conscience so as to avoid sin. One of the best ways to honor God is to respond to his love with your own love toward others. And I might add, loving yourself as well. You can't give to others what you don't first possess. We need to love God and neighbor, yes, but don't forget the great gift of life that you have and that God wants you to also Love yourself so you can live that joy and give that joy to others. Regarding rest, make Sunday different from the rest of the week. For example, avoid unnecessary, the church teaches, unnecessary work on Sundays. Try to finish errands and chores by sundown on Saturday if you can. Serve leftovers or easily prepared foods on paper plates to minimize washing and cleaning up afterwards on Sundays. I had a homeschooling a uh, group of moms tell me that, uh, make Sundays as light as possible, and, and that includes making it a leftover day uh, and or a paper plate day, right? Limit screen time on television and social media, for example, like online shopping or wasteful surfing uh, on the web. And then regarding joy, which I've already talked about a little bit, God rested on the seventh day and delighted in his creation, Genesis 1 tells us through the beginning of chapter 2. So find time on Sundays to do something that brings you joy. For example, spending time with loved ones, taking a nature walk, working on a hobby, or reading a good book. Regarding charity, traditionally charitable works are performed on the Lord's Day. Consider putting some extra money in the offertory box for the poor at church, for example, or donating food or clothes to a shelter or local birthright center or visiting a lonely neighbor. Now, you might have to make donations on Saturday or on a weekday, but at least you've done so in preparation for the Sunday of giving to charity. And don't forget, praying for others and treating them with kindness is a much-needed act of charity, especially in today's day and age, which seems to be so uh, self-centered and curt and short. We want to improve in those areas in our own sphere of influence. Um, There's a great quote by uh, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, God gave each of us a sphere of influence in which to influence, huh? Well, in mine, I, I pray to God that it can be charitable and joyful and restful and worshipful. And then also the Catechism of the Catholic Church sums up these four areas of worship, rest, joy, and charity by stating the, the following in Numbers 2184 and 2185, quote, Uh, Sunday is a day of grace and rest from work. Just as God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, human life also has a rhythm of work and rest. The institution of the Lord's Day helps everyone enjoy adequate rest and leisure to cultivate their familial, cultural, social, and religious lives. How? Again, through worship, rest, joy, and charity. For example, the charity feeds the cultural because you're giving to charity, like the birthright center or whatnot. 
or to a homeless shelter. Uh, number 128, 2185 says, on Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder worship owed to God, divine worship, and the joy proper to the Lord's day, the performance of the works of mercy or charity, and the appropriate relaxation of mind and body. Now, sometimes work is necessary on Sunday, so what do we do then? Well, try to have another day of the week where you can fulfill the Sunday uh, obligations uh, of these four areas uh, on that day that you are off from work. Family needs or important social service can legitimately excuse from the obligation of Sunday rest, the church teaches. The faithful should see to it that such legitimate excuses do not lead to habits, habits that are prejudicial to religion, family life, and health. And so that number one, 2185 is very important, Jack, because I'm often asked, well, what about necessary work on Sunday, huh? as opposed to unnecessary work on Sunday? And that beautiful paragraph spells it out for us. St. Augustine teaches us, the charity of truth seeks holy leisure. The necessity of charity accepts just work. So sometimes work is just, huh? but it doesn't mean we can't fulfill these four areas especially the worship due to Almighty God at other times. For example, maybe the vigil mass fits into your work schedule, right? Or maybe a Sunday evening mass. A lot of uh, parishes have Sunday evening liturgies in large suburban areas, especially those areas that have college towns as well or university towns. They are university towns. You'll often find a, a Sunday evening mass as well. And regarding healthy worship, this is important, Jack. Recent medical studies reveal that people who attend church at least weekly have longer life expectancies. How about that? and fewer complications from illnesses or surgeries than non-churchgoers. Going to church may not protect us from health crises, but it does help us to cope with them. Great thought there. And be sure to empty and fill. What do I mean by that? Do I mean your, your gas tank? Well, with prices today, thankfully I don't mean that. <laughs> but be sure to empty and fill. There are times in our lives when we have to empty our minds of negativity so God can replace it with his peace and joy. Each day, take time to rid yourself of any anger, fear, jealousy, bitterness, and self-pity, for example, playing the victim card. huh? Then look for God's gifts of peace, wisdom, friendship, forgiveness, and love. Those five gifts counteract the, 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 the pity parties of anger, fear, jealousy, bitterness, and self-pity itself. Huh? Look for peace, wisdom, friendship, forgiveness, and love. So I love that, uh, that, that one study, huh? recent medical studies, reveal that, that people who attend church at least weekly have longer life expectancies and fewer complications from illnesses or surgeries than non-churchgoers. Going to church may not protect us from health crises, but it does help us to cope more aptly with them. So there you have it. Uh, the importance of Sunday worship, rest, and charity and joy, number 2184 and number 2185 of the Universal Catechism, because every Sunday, Jack, is a little Easter. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. 
Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. EWTN Religious Catalog has a beautiful offering. It's a book called Manual for Suffering by Father Jeffrey Kirby. Uh, You know, people often question why a good and powerful God would allow suffering of any kind in our world and why good people have to suffer. And Father Kirby responds to these questions and many others in Manual for Suffering and reveals answers from the depths of the Catholic faith. The first part lays out the biblical and theological foundations for suffering and the world's fallenness. And the second part aids for those who suffer, including passages and excerpts from scriptural texts, magisterial teachings and writings of the saints and traditional Catholic prayers and devotionals. It's available now. Manual for Suffering from Father Jeffrey Kirby at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free shipping, uh, free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more, and that's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Um, That's Manual for Suffering by Father Jeffrey Kirby at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Um, first up today is Teresa in Chatsworth, California, listening on the EWTN app. Teresa, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Father Manises. I have a uh, question for you. Uh, We did the nine days novena for St. Faustina for uh, Divine Mercy Sunday. Do we also have to go to confession within 21 days? Okay, you're, you're asking that question as though the nine-day novena per se is attached to either the plenary indulgence received on Divine Mercy Sunday or the extraordinary grace offered as well on Divine Mercy Sunday. To my knowledge, the novena per se carried out over a nine-day period, ending on the Saturday before Divine Mercy Sunday. In and of itself, the novena doesn't have anything to do with the extraordinary grace or the plenary indulgence that can be received on Divine Mercy Sunday itself. And they're pretty much the same, the two, except in two important regards, the the plenary indulgence versus the uh, extraordinary grace. The plenary indulgence can be applied for yourself personally, obviously still living, or to another person, uh, known or unknown to you, who is deceased. Okay, where the extraordinary grace can only be applied to yourself, period, not to a deceased person known or unknown to you. The second way the two differ is that for the plenary indulgence, you have to have a firm-willed detachment from all sin, mortal or venial, where with the extraordinary grace to receive it, also on Divine Mercy Sunday, you don't need to have that detachment from... uh, sin. It surely helps if you do, but you don't have to have it. This is precisely what makes that grace so, quote, end quote, extraordinary. Okay, so that's how the two differ. And to my knowledge, to my knowledge, the nine-day novena per se has nothing to do with either one of those. Now, many people pray the nine-day novena, which begins on Good Friday. In fact, I prayed it again this year. Uh, It begins on Good Friday, and it ends on Holy Saturday. Excuse me, it it begins on Good Friday, and it ends on Easter Saturday, uh, Saturday of Easter week. And then the next day is Divine Mercy Sunday, also referred to as the second Sunday of Easter, okay? Um, But as far as the confessional requirement, not so much to do with the nine-day novena, but to do with the ability to receive the plenary indulgence or the extraordinary grace. 
Uh, yes, you need to go to confession either 20 days before Divine Mercy Sunday or 20 days after Divine Mercy Sunday. And it's understood, obviously, that to receive Holy Communion on Divine Mercy Sunday, you already have the moral certitude that you are in a state of grace. That is to say, not knowledgeable of any mortal sin. Okay, and it's possible to know that in your sincerest of knowledge that to the best of my ability, I'm not consciously aware of any mortal sin. So if you're planning to go to confession for the Divine Mercy Sunday Extraordinary Grace or the Divine Mercy Sunday Plenary Indulgence after Divine Mercy Sunday, within 20 days after Divine Mercy Sunday, it's understood that you already understand that you have the moral certitude you're in a state of grace on Divine Mercy Sunday itself. Now notice... Um, the 20 days before or the 20 days after is a total of 40 days, right? Well, that's because 40 means something, quote-unquote. Uh, uh, new growth, um, uh, conversion, uh, one great task to another great task. I've talked about this in, in, in uh, my first uh, Open Line Tuesday show during Lent this year. 40 means something. So notice the 20 days that we have to go to confession before a plenary indulgence or 20 days after the plenary indulgence, that is the spiritual work that's sought for that particular plenary indulgence. And there's over 250 ways to receive a plenary indulgence in the book of indulgences that you can pick up at your local Catholic bookstore. The, why is that 20 before, 20 after, days after, the day the spiritual work is sought for the plenary indulgence? Well, that's because 40 is important, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. There was Moses, who uh, was atop Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Elijah, in his in his uh, uh, trek to Mount Horeb, forty days and forty nights. Uh, th th there's all kinds of reasons why forty means this new growth, this conversion process. Notice that even the gestation period for a, a human female is around forty weeks. So that's why it's the twenty days before, or the twenty days after, and that's pretty standard for most plenary indulgence spiritual works that are sought, not for the work themselves, but for the uh, charity they prosper, and for the moral certitude of the state of sanctifying grace that we're in. So does that help you out, Teresa, that you're beginning your question asking about the novena per se, and then the second half of your question has to do with the 20 days before or after for confession. So I, I, that's how I understood your question, where I want you to understand that the novena per se isn't really tied in and of itself, to either the plenary indulgence that we can receive on Divine Mercy Sunday itself, nor is it tied, the novena, nor is it tied in and of itself to the extraordinary grace that we can also receive on Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, to find out the, the total of the requirements, and I believe there's five for either the plenary indulgence or the extraordinary grace, the, the five conditions to receive that on Divine Mercy Sunday, either of those two, on Divine Mercy Sunday can be found in a printout document that's very good, a very good printout document, ready to print out on your home printer, at DivineMercySunday.com. DivineMercySunday.com. So does that help you out with what you're asking about the novena in and of itself? Yes, it does. Thank you very much for both of you for taking my calls. Oh, you're very welcome. And, very and again, welcome. Div DivineMercySunday.com. It's got the printout documents to tell you what the requirements are for the Extraordinary Grace, another one that tells you what the requirements are for the Plenary Indulgence, another document that tells you how the two of them differ, uh, primarily in those two ways that I've already enunciated. Thank you, Teresa, for a, a great series of questions. Thank you. Thank you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Teresa Tuesday. We're going to go to another Teresa. This one's a first-time caller in the great state of Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Teresa, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much for taking my call. You're welcome, Teresa. Thank you. I have a question for Father. Um, I, uh, I am trying to deal with um, like severe abuse and post-traumatic from, you know, and it is so incredibly painful, and I only know one scripture, and I have it hanging in my room, but I am wondering if you could please enlighten me on scriptures that might help me feel like God hasn't left me, because I sure do feel all alone, and I don't know what to do. I just keep praying, but there's it just keeps, more stuff just keeps happening, and so I'm drowning. So I'm asking if you know of any. Well, there's there's a lot of scripture passages that have to do with suffering. Um, I I want you to first of all marvel in God's goodness that we had already taken your call, Teresa, and put you on hold when we came back from our break. And I noticed that Jack uh, gave the promo for the new book by Father um, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, Father Jeffrey Kirby, uh, Manual for Suffering, you know, so maybe maybe that's something you might want to look at to understand better how suffering is part and parcel with your life. Now, you don't say whether this severe abuse is from your past or if it's current, but if it's severe abuse, first of all, uh, you know, get the authorities involved. That's number one. You don't state what kind of abuse it is. You don't state if it's from your past or if it's current, and we don't need to know that for the purposes of this show. But if if it's serious abuse or even minor abuse, but you feel it's legitimate, legitimate in and of itself per se, get the civil authorities involved. That needs to be done, okay? We, that's how we begin to seek help, is by asking the help of others, especially those professionals who are involved with this, okay, this type of thing. But as far as Scripture passages, um, you know, for example, um, uh, the God of all grace who called you from his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while here on earth will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. First Peter 5.10, that's the, the first papal encyclical, I like to call it, with the second letter of Peter being the, the second papal encyclical. Um, how about Second Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen to that. In, in heaven, where there will eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it even dawned on the human mind what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, how about all of the, the passion passages from the Gospels on Jesus' own passion, suffering, and death that we went through at the beginning of Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday and leading up to the Sacred Triduum? All of those passages, uh, in, in and of themselves, uh, tell us how to cope, right? And we're members of his body. How about looking at a crucifix? I've given that beautiful uh, poem on, on the air before. If you go to fathersofmercy.com and on the search bar, Teresa just put, look at the crucifix, those four words, look at the crucifix. And it's, it's a beautiful poem on looking at the crucifix and uniting our own temporal suffering here on earth with our Lord's suffering on that, that Good Friday that he died for us. Huh? So there's all the gospel passages regarding the passion and death of our Lord. Remembering, too, the resurrection and reading the resurrection narratives in Scripture in the four gospels. How about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Why is that? Well, we know his body suffered, right? Literally, his body suffered in its human nature. Uh, he is the head of that body, just as he's head of the mystical body, the Church. So if that body in its human nature suffered, and we're members of that body mystically, the Church, capital C, then it makes sense that suffering will be part and parcel with our own life, and that's very important to remember. So, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, St. Paul says to the church members at Colossae, and I fill up in my own flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, uh, the sufferings that would come uh, for all eternity huh, in, in the mystical body. And so that's something we want to recall as well. But Paul's willing to be a suffering member to offer even more uh, in addition to what Christ suffered for us as a, as a member of the body. He himself wants to have a cognizant awareness of embracing that suffering. So there's many, many passages, but take a look at, at uh, EW10.com as well for books on suffering and, and trials and tribulations, especially Father Kirby's book that Jack just gave a little promo of. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, the book of the month for April from EWTN Publishing is Answering the Questions of Jesus by Father Andrew Apostoli of Happy Memory. Father Andrew reflects on each of the many questions Jesus asked in the Gospels, and his insight and wisdom will guide you to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he is really asking of you today. Just some of the questions he talks about are, why, uh, why were you looking for me? Have you no faith? And do you love me? The questions, answering the questions of Jesus uh, by uh, our good friend Father Andrew Apostoli, available at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Next stop is Des Moines, Iowa. Linda is in the great state of Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Linda, you are on with Father Wade. Thank you very much. And Father Wade, I really loved all your missions that you did at uh, Christ the King here in Des Moines. Wonderful missions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Linda. I really appreciate that. It's all God's work. That's a great, great Uh, parish. Yeah, it really is. My question, Father, regarding, you know, the Sunday, you know, Sunday rest, what you said at the beginning of the show, I've always felt uncomfortable, like after Mass on Sunday, going out to brunch or, you know, having a Sunday you know, family meal at a restaurant, because the workers in those restaurants have to work on Sunday, and that's really unnecessary work. And if I didn't go to brunch, that person, you know, people might not have to work. So can you kind of enlighten me on that? (laughs) Well, if you didn't go to brunch on the Sunday, they may not have to work as hard, let, let, you know, realistically, they would still have to work, but not as hard, because uh, their boss is requiring them to work on Sunday. So, so again, 2185 is our guide, huh? And then I'll come back to you being the patron or the client to the place of business. But 2185 says, on Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God. So that's number one. The, the, the work should not habitually take us away from worship. If it does, we need to find a way to fulfill that worship, because every Sunday is a holy day of obligation. So for example, the Vigil Mass on Sunday, the earliest Mass possible uh, on Sunday itself, 
and or a Sunday evening mass, especially in a university town. Huh? Uh, also, such work should not hinder the joy proper to the Lord's day. Also, it should not hinder the performance of works of charity, and also regular work should not uh, hinder the relaxation of mind and body, rest, uh, which is required huh, for Sunday. So those are the four areas, the worship, the joy, the charity, and the rest, according to the church's teaching. Family needs, okay, family needs or important social service can legitimately, can legitimately excuse one from the obligation of Sunday rest. So the four categories that Sunday is all about, worship, rest, joy, and charity— your question deals with rest especially. Are we, are we taking one away from that, that rest that's needed? Hopefully they're, they're a believer, they got to church at, at some time, uh, and so forth. But, but important social service can legitimately excuse one from the obligation to Sunday rest. The faithful should see to it, however, that legitimate excuses, again, legitimate excuses, do not lead to habits Habits that are prejudicial to religion, family life, or health. Health meaning the rest or relaxation. So, all things within reason, and you ask an excellent question, I might add, Linda, all things within reason for the Catholic believer and what they should do on the Sunday in regards to shopping, in regards to going out. Because we esteem these four areas for ourselves as Catholic Christians, if you can refrain on the Sunday from going out, refrain, and instead make Sunday a great time for a family meal with paper plates, <laughs> you know? So all things within reason. So for example, if I have relatives coming to visit me, and I'm only going to see them for two hours because they're stopping for a layover at the Nashville airport, which is the airport closest to the Fathers of Mercy in Auburn, Kentucky— and I go to visit them for that two-hour layover, and that's the only time I can see them, and it's a Sunday. And because it's a two-hour block of time, I have time to take them out locally for a meal just to spend time and charity and love with them and quality time as my relatives. There's nothing wrong in regards to doing that. R rules are for men, not men for rules, Jesus says in the Gospels, huh? And so we want to not be scrupulous, putting ourselves supra-ecclesia, nor be self-loathing, putting ourselves sub-ecclesia. Virtue is found in the mean, the via media. But if brunch becomes a habit for you and your friends or you and your spouse every Sunday after Mass, then I would question that as, a, as, a, as something that could be improved in your spiritual life. And instead, how about hosting a brunch at your house where every, you make it clear to people that, you know, it's Sunday, it's Sunday, but you're inviting people over for, to bring a dish, and you're going to pray the rosary, you're going to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and that, you know, it'll be, it'll be held from one to three. That way you and your spouse or you and your family members and loved ones know that from three o'clock, you're back to your own time again, but you're opening up your home socially for this brunch with those committed friends of yours to pray the chaplet. And it's a great time to have fellowship. It's a great way to have fellowship. It's a great way to socialize. It's a great way to also increase your worship on Sunday by praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet or Five Decades of the Rosary with friends and so forth. I would say those things are more important than getting together every Sunday at a restaurant for brunch. So all things within reason, all things within a balance, given the case scenario. But I think you're right. You make a good point that some things should not become habitual. And 2185 mentions 
that habitual that that habitualness that, that of of habits that become a normative in our life in such a way that's precisely what that makes them a habit that would prevent others from their own rest or relaxation but there may be a sunday where that's the only time you can meet with the person and and that's understandable too so that's where virtue is the mean and it and it comes into the spiritual life as such all things in a balance great question linda thank you so much 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And I've got a couple of shout-outs. Linda, calling from Christ the King Parish on the south side of Detroit. Uh, Detroit, how am I doing? On the south side of Des Moines. And um, a couple of a couple of shout-outs to, to Christ the King. Uh, their parochial vicar, Father Nick Stark, was a classmate all through school at St. Pius X Parish in Urbandale, Iowa, with my oldest son, Robert. Mm-hmm. And Nick is uh, upcoming, the first anniversary in June of his ordination to the sacred priesthood. And also right. Deacon Chuck Putbreeze, who has served uh, Christ the King for many, many years, retired now, but has served uh, as a deacon at Christ the King for many, many years, was um, the driving force in the family that really brought Catholic Radio to uh, Des Moines with the radio station that their family owned. And for that matter, Monsignor Frank Bignano, the former pastor of Christ the King Parish, uh, before Father McManus took over, was one of the very first regular guests that Mother Angelica had on the network back in the early 80s when she started the television network. So Christ the King in South Des Moines, very uh, prominent in the EWTN history here. Uh, next up is Terry in Fairfax, Virginia, watching us on YouTube today. Terry, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Okay, good afternoon, Father Wade. Thank you for um, taking my call. Um, the reason why I'm calling is because I've been thinking about uh, the issue that we're having with um, in Central Europe with um, at least two bishops, at least two cardinals, at least one archbishop, where they're basically coming together, um, and they want to propose a change in things that have to do, you know, with morality and sex. And I keep thinking to myself, these are very, very high clerics. They have been pastors for years. They have people underneath them, priests, that are basically probably, you know, um, sharing the same thinking with them, and it's all, you know, coming up, uh, to the top. Um, so it's very confusing because it's coming from high up. So what's the, what's uh, the question exactly, Terry? The question is, how does somebody, an average person that is confused by this, what do, what do you do? You follow the magisterium of the Church. You know, a settled doctrine should not come up to debate when it's fully uh, supported uh, by sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the Church, which itself is rooted or grounded in the apostolic college. This is a crisis of truth, you know, a crisis of truth. And 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 um, your, your original question, you know, uh, is this the first time we've ever had bishops and cardinals have have disagreements about moral teachings? No, not at all. Uh, Whenever a church council is convened throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, especially in the earliest centuries, it was because bishops disagreed, cardinals disagreed. Now, in the earliest earliest, uh, councils, uh, 
doctrine was being defined that hadn't been defined before. So the question of Arianism, for example, in the early church. Councils were called to settle the debate, and thus it established the doctrine based on scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. The problem we have today is that already settled doctrine is being debated. And in my opinion, there, there should not be a, a reason for that except for fallen human nature. And uh, bishops, clerics, uh, even by clerics, I mean even priests who espouse uh, progressive views, liberalism, indeed, anti-church teachings uh, from the pulpit. And it's a, it's a travesty. And uh, uh, in, discipline needs to be had in those regards from those who are their superiors. And I'm talking even necessarily with bishops who need to answer directly to Rome in that regard. So it, it is a scandal. That's the other thing I want to say. It causes scandal. And this bears now on the question how you asked it verbally on the air. What are we to do? Well, what are we to do? We embrace the magisterium because we know that what's being proposed is absolutely scandalous. Uh, and it's regarding a settled doctrine. It's like the, the, the synod now, I think, is very good that it's taking place. However, I wonder, why is the synod questioning things that's already settled doctrine, other than the fact maybe how it can better be employed uh, the teaching can be better employed for modern times, that's a legitimate concern, but the doctrine itself, the doctrine per se, if it's settled doctrine, why is it coming up at the synods, at the diocesan levels, like it's something that's open for debate? That's what's confusing, to the lay, confusing, uh, confusing the lay faithful. I have good husband and wife friends of mine here in the state of Kentucky who went to their uh, parish one evening for open discussion at the local diocesan synod, and the wife told me that three-quarters of the evening was spent with people giving opinions on topics that was already settled doctrine in the church based on the three-legged stool of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, the magisterium. She says, why were we even wasting our time in that regard? And she had her hand up to ask that very question, but she never got the chance to ask. So, you know, yes and yes. Yes, the church has always, to answer your two questions, the, your written question to our call screener, as well as your verbal question on air, yes, the church has always suffered from this type of a thing, of debate. In fact, that's usually why councils are, are called. Uh, including the Second Vatican Council, which was the last ecumenical council and the 21st council, council the Church has ever had, uh, 21st ecumenical council the Church has ever had in its 2,000-year history. Um, and, and it's always usually because a doctrine is being challenged, okay? And so we're experiencing that now. And so, yes, also to your second question, what are we to do? Well, you be a faithful student of the faith, and you defend the truth as it's defined by Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ. This is why the Universal Catechism is such a precious jewel. You know, in the introduction to the Universal Catechism, Terry, uh, John Paul II calls it, quote, in quote, a sure norm for the faith. The Universal Catechism is a sure norm for the faith. Well, that's good enough for me. It's going to be guiding me. And so my, my preaching springboards from the Catechism, uh, very clearly, in fact, and, and, I, and as do for all the Fathers of Mercy, my community. Our goal is to be faithful and right in line with the chair of Peter and swerve neither left nor right to the chair of Peter. That's our goal. Again, virtue, like I said with the previous caller, virtue is found in the mean. 
the Via Media. Father Bill Casey likes to say that if you fall out of the bark of Peter, it doesn't matter if you fall out to the left or to the right, you risk drowning, huh? You risk drowning. And so our goal is to be right in line with the chair of Peter, swerve neither left nor right. Great question, Terry. And uh, your goal is to be that faithful student who can articulate to other Catholics uh, the truths of the faith, whether they're suffering from this same phenomena that you bring up, uh, even the highest clerics debating about doctrine, or whether you're simply witnessing to somebody about a truth of the faith, uh, or whether they're actually experiencing scandal because of such debates, you want to be a true student of the faith to give them calm, to give them solidity, to give them doctrine that is that is sound and solid, uh, and help them become better students of the faith as well. Great question, Terry. Thank you so much, especially during the Easter season, where we focus on defending the truth. And especially, we do that all the time, but especially during the Easter season, because our Lord died for the truth. He died for us, and he died for the truth uh, uh, that's that's given to us and by his bride, the Church. And we want to always, always defend the truth, even to the point of death. And this is the great witness of the martyrs. So thank you, Terry, for a great question. Be sure to check out More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow's topic, blowing a fuse. Is someone really pushing your buttons, causing you to feel like you're at the end of your rope? Well, Dr. Greg and Lisa will help you keep your cool. That's More to Life tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Peter, another first-time caller in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Peter, you're on with Father Wade. Uh, hello, Father. I'm just, uh, I I'm, have a question about the Church's teaching on the requirements for a just war. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that in uh, Thomas Aquinas says that war has to have a just cause, a right authority, and a right intention, but I've heard a lot of people recently saying also something about there has to be a, a reasonable prospect of victory, and I don't really see that anywhere in the... Uh, the Church Fathers or the scholastic tradition. It seems to be kind of a modern innovation, and I just wondered if you could say something about what the actual Church teaching is about that. Yeah, the reason for that is because of the modern weaponry we now have, which can do mass, mass destruction on a very large and even global scale. And so uh, this is why that more innovative, especially teaching from Pope Paul VI, now saint, and Pope John XXIII, now saint. Remember, the, the Just War Theory is a great example of what we call the doctrine of the development of doctrine. And we see this point now not enunciated in the scholastic teachings of St. Thomas or from the Church Fathers, precisely because of the weaponry now that, that can do so much damage on, a, on such a large scale. Even, even weapons that may not destroy buildings and bridges and roadways, but can let out massive, massive amounts of radiation and kill everything that's living. Uh, I think of, uh, of the so-called neutron bomb, discussed a lot at the time of, of the Reagan presidency. So uh, the just war theory is a great example of the Catholic Church's doctrine of, quote, the development of doctrine. So nothing, um, nothing is changed, nothing is altered, things are only brought to a greater clarity. 
Okay, and so and so the strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force require this this rigorous consideration that is part of the church's patrimony and is discussed in greater length by those two popes I just mentioned from the 1960s when the nuclear proliferation really really was at its height its height or at least the beginning of its height. Um, which took us all the way in through, you know, the early 2000s. Uh, the gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy, and so several things have to be looked at uh, at one and the same time. So the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. All other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. This is right out of the Universal Catechism. That's number two. Number three, there must be a serious uh, prospects must be serious prospects for success in the response. That's the one you're referring to. Number four, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. Okay, think of the mass destruction of life through uh, the power of modern means of destruction, and this weighs very heavily in evaluating this particular condition, number four, that's enunciated in the Catechism. And uh, those are the traditional elements uh, enumerated in what is called the Just War Doctrine. And so the evaluation of these conditions for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have the responsibility for the common good. And so we pray for those in legitimate authority of the common good to have the wisdom to look to the Church's teachings on just war theory, okay, and just war teaching, not even theory, just war teaching, since we're talking about it in the context of, of the Church's own doctrine. Um, where do we get this from especially? I think you, you nailed it. I want to add two more areas. You nailed it when you said the Church Fathers and the scholastic teachings from Thomas Aquinas especially. I want to add especially the teachings of John Paul II along with John the Twenty-Third and Pope Paul VI. All three are canonized saints now, by the way. And number four, Vatican II, especially in Gaudium et Spes, uh, the, the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. Gaudium et Spes, that, the Latin translation is joys and hopes, because we pray for a, a world of joys and hopes where where you know, we, we don't have to worry about war uh, in general, or particularly war on a, on a large scale. So great question, especially in a, in a time and day and age where uh, things can be very, very fickle on the political front internationally. Uh, and and uh, a great question, too, I think, during the Easter season, where we want to focus on peace in a very, very special way, that this, this beautiful, beautiful 50-day Easter season, uh, focusing on the reality of peace and amends with one's neighbor, whether, whether uh, a p fellow person or whether uh, nations, such as with Russia and the Ukraine, uh, nations in that regard. So thank you for a great, great question. Hope that helped you out. Thank you so much. Uh, next stop is the great state of Florida. Daniel, another first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Daniel, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, thank you all for taking my call. Um, I'm trying to, I don't want to make this too confusing. I feel like it's, I can have a tendency to ramble, but uh, I'm in the process, I feel, of uh, becoming Catholic. I was raised Protestant, a non-denominational, Pentecostal background, and currently we go, my wife and my kids, we go to um, a interdenominational church. My kids really enjoy the Sunday school aspect of it, but the local parish that I'm looking at going to, and I haven't attended a Mass yet, doesn't seem to have anything for the kids other than, you know, taking them to Mass with the adults. And I, 
my question is twofold. One, um, would it be okay for me to go to Mass alone while my wife and kids go to the Sunday school we've been going to? Um, uh, or should I take them to Mass with me, even though I don't know that they're quite old enough to understand what's going on? And I don't really understand it fully either. And then the other part of the question was, once a month, you know, they do a communion, and I've always taken it. Uh, but now that I feel kind of called towards Catholicism, should I refrain from taking that communion? I, I know it might okay. be a silly question, but that I can't no, find an answer. <laughs> it's, it's a great question, Daniel. First of all, I would encourage you to enroll in an official RCIA program, if you haven't already, with the local parish within your, your home's jurisdiction of where you live. Uh, right of Christian Initiation for Adults, uh, usually it's a two-year program for an adult to become a Catholic. You learn about the sacraments, you learn about the faith, etc. Once you're seriously committed to that, um, you want to start focusing, for example, on the doctrine of the real presence. You want to feed yourself uh, theologically with the truths of the faith. You can't receive the Eucharist yet until you become a Catholic at the Easter Vigil, uh, or, or privately, because there can be uh, means uh, uh, provided where the individual enters the Church privately. We see that in many of the lives of the saints, for example, like St. Edith Stein. But uh, when you're committed, you're committed. Okay, now, your wife and children aren't necessarily being called to become Catholic. You want to respect that with them, and thank God they are going to uh, a Protestant faith where they feel that they are being fed, and legitimately so. But you, according to your seriousness, you want to be committed to that as well. If you're committed to becoming a Catholic, I would not let Sunday Mass go by without attending. Again, you can't receive the Eucharist yet, but you can surely be fed with actual graces by your doing so. And then that sets an example for your wife and children. Do you need to go with them to the to the Protestant Church? You're most welcome to do that, but I would not let that usurp your you're going to a Catholic Mass as well on Sunday, even if you go to the vigil which fulfills the Sunday obligation which you're not bound to yet, or whether you go on a Sunday evening, uh, if you can't do both both the Mass and the Protestant service during the Sunday mid-morning hours. Still try to go to Mass at another time, because you're being fed uh, to learn more about the Catholic faith, etc. That's what you want to do. Uh, your wife and children are, should still, of course, be encouraged to attend the Church they attend. As far as your children, you sense not being fed at the Catholic Church, I would tend to disagree. Maybe that's not the case of your local parish, and you can talk to the pastor about that. But two things. First of all, we do have a, a popular program where the children will leave during the Liturgy of the Word to have it presented to them in a way that is age-appropriate, but then they come back for the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Remember, every Mass is two liturgies, the Liturgies of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. But on top of that, this is number two, the Church has a different view in regards to family worship. The noble simplicity of the sacred and the holy and the children experiencing that. We don't come from an angle of emotional feed where we need the, 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 the highfalutin things that are fed emotionally. And that's fine for, for those other faiths, but that's not the Catholic tradition. The noble simplicity of the Roman rite in its ordinary form and extraordinary form of the sacred silence, the holiness, the liturgical action, the, the art of celebration, both of priest and people, and all that is taking place. So that's how we see the Catholic Mass. Great question. Thank you so much. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. Fathersofmercy.org for more information. God bless.